You are listening to Tipple Talks, a podcast dedicated to international relations, politics, and culture. Hosted by Sebastian Rose, Rory Nolan, Callum Lynch, and Andrew Knowles. In popular culture, media, and political discourse coming from the White House, Mexico has come to represent the embodiment of U.S. racial, cultural, and economic anxieties. Trump has given a new face and voice to this historic ignorance by implicitly singling out its southern neighbors as the cause and source of the nation's ills. What is often left out of political conversations on the increasing instability and violence of Mexico is the role of the U.S. in perpetuating the war on drugs through its world-leading consumption of illicit substances, and its promotion of the devastating free trade deal known as NAFTA. This has culminated in a stagnant Mexican economy, the displacement of 2 million Mexican agricultural workers, and waves of migrants trying to find low-wage work north of the border. We spoke to Natalia Pulate, formerly of the Mexican Foreign Ministry and the European Council, about Mexican-US relations. We discussed the nexus between the war on drugs, violence and immigration, and the impact this ongoing conflict has had on the internal politics and human rights of Mexico. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tipple Talks. This week's episode is going to be focusing on Mexico and uh, its relationship with the US, and also touching a little bit on the, the war on drugs and... Um, the, the political kind of uh, landscape of Mexico in recent years and how that's affected um, these issues. We're very lucky to have uh, Natalia Pujalte uh, on the show with us, who is a bit of a, an expert, you might say. Um, she has a very interesting background. She's worked with the European Council. She's also worked uh, in the foreign ministry in Mexico and um, also is a bit of a, an expert on, kind of, on human rights issues in relation to uh, that country. And so she's going to talk to us a bit about these um, particular issues. Yes, and she's also our first female guest. She is. So So welcome on to Tipple Talks, Natalia. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you guys for having me. I'm I'm really happy um, to be talking about the issues that I really care about. I'm so passionate. And on top of that, it's... Mexican Independence Day as well, so I think it's uh, the perfect time to be talking about these issues. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, So, can you, just for most of our listeners, and I include myself in this category, um, can you kind of outline the political context of US-Mexican relations over the last sort of 30 years or so, and just kind of sketch out a picture to the kind of uninitiated within um, kind of understanding Mexico's political landscape and their external relationships with their big neighbor. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, going a little bit back uh, before 30 years, I think, um, you know, geographically, Apart from the geographical proximity, U.S. and Mexico have huge history economically, politically, historically, and I think the relationship, one of the most important things 
that really defines a relationship is a symmetry and uh, intense interdependence uh, from both sides, but also this dependence on the Mexican side. Um, so for years, you know, a lot of people put so much importance on NAFTA to really um, increase relations, economic relations and uh, migratory relations between the two countries. But in fact, um, NAFTA was something that just legally solidified something that had been happening for years. Uh, so both countries depend heavily on each other economically, most more so Mexico than the U.S. But also, you know, everyone, everyone knows that um, Mexican migration to the U.S. is enormous. So I would say around 10% of our population uh, lives in the United States. And around 10% of that population, half of those are unauthorized migrants as well. So for us, in terms of foreign policy as well, it's, it's um, one of our, it, it's the most important, um, I think, focus in terms of our foreign relations. You know, when I was working in the foreign ministry, uh, I think... 95% of all the efforts that the foreign ministry did were really focused on Mexico, on the U.S. relationship uh, from all aspects, you know, economic, uh, cooperations, especially migration. And it's, it's crazy that we have such a huge network as well of um, consulates in, in the U.S. that really reflect on the importance Mexico gives to the U.S. because we have such a big population and most of our economy depends on the U.S. So it's in the past 30 years, it's it's boomed enormously the amount of dependence Mexico has on our northern country. Mm. You, you mentioned NAFTA there uh, briefly. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain to, to the listeners what NAFTA is and its general impact on Mexico? Yeah. So NAFTA is, or, yeah, is a trade deal uh, that was initiated in the 90s. Um, it was signed and it went into effect in 1994. Uh, it's a, an agreement that is signed with uh, the U.S., Canada and Mexico. And basically what it aimed to reduce was uh, tariffs on, um, on all products between the three countries. Um, and it's, it's been huge for, for both uh, the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, uh, specifically on, on certain um, parts of the economy. At least in Mexico, for example, we went from being a main exporter of agriculture to being one of the biggest powerhouses in the world of, um, of uh, auto parts. So for us, our the Mexican economy depends a lot on the auto industry, and mm-hmm. that's one of our biggest leverages, at least with the U.S. now that, um, sorry, I should go back a little bit before. So yes, it's been, you know, it was signed in 19, 1994, and um, it didn't produce a lot of the growth that people expected and I would say that the biggest beneficiary um, of this trilateral agreement has been the United States 
Um, there isn't so much relationship economically between Canada and Mexico, although that did also increase. But in terms of the U.S. trade with Canada and U.S. trade with Mexico, um, it has increased enormously. Um, and it includes chapters ranging from agriculture to uh, investment, trade, uh, intellectual property rights. So for NAFTA has been huge in terms of um, the economy between the three countries. And especially Mexico and the United States, uh, our trade has increased enormously. Um, you said that the biggest uh, kind of beneficiary of this trade agreement has been the USA. Yeah. If you've been listening to President Trump in the last few, well, even before his presidency, he talked about how NAFTA was um, basically a gift to the Mexicans. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you think this kind of rhetoric and discourse comes from? You know, Mexico doesn't actually really benefit as much as the USA from this trade deal, but Trump has managed to like popularize the idea that um, the USA is being ripped off from it. Yeah. Well, I think um, the thing is, Trump, I disagree with absolutely everything that he says, uh, because he has such a narrow view of, um, you know, international relations and politics in general. And, you know, I remember him saying something that, like, NAFTA was the worst trade deal ever, you know? It's like this this total um, rejection of NAFTA as if it was the worst thing ever. Uh, and part of that, you know, he, he based that argument on the trade deficit. So U.S. has a, the U.S. has a trade deficit um, with Mexico in terms of NAFTA. And, uh, you know, he also believes that when he started his, um, his administration, he was pressuring a lot of the automotive industries um, to move back to the U.S. Uh, because he felt that since, the, since labor is cheaper in Mexico, a lot of the automotive industry has been moving to the Mexican border to produce auto parts. And what he believes is um, a loss in terms of employment for American citizens. Um, right. But, you know, what he's not really understanding is that the auto industry in the United States relies heavily on these Mexican auto parts. And as well, the United States benefits enormously on uh, Mexican agriculture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mexico is the second largest international market for American goods. Yes, there is a trade deficit, but it, I don't believe necessarily it affects uh, the U.S. as negatively as Trump makes it seem and highlights by saying that it is the worst um, agreement ever. And, you know, I think it, it's shown in the fact that U.S. purchases are over 80% of all Mexican exports. Mm. And so the Mexican economy is highly dependent on trade with the United States. So I personally think that the United States... Um, the way Trump makes it seem is not has benefited from NAFTA agreements. I do agree that um, NAFTA needs to be modernized in several areas, which is where you know they're why they have agreed to start renegotiating the agreements because it's so we're twenty years old. Um, but I 
do not think it, it has affected the U.S. as negatively as he states. You know, you cannot just look at the trade deficit and say, oh, yeah, we've done terribly in this agreement because it hasn't been that way. Um, I'm kind of curious. There's been this sense that um, uh, obviously with, with Trump's rhetoric in, um, being what it is, that relations between kind of um, the Mexican and the U.S. government uh, are in a really bad place, perhaps. Um, yeah. But but what what has the relationship been like, perhaps in the last ten years under, you know, under Bush, and then perhaps before that under under Clinton as well? Is is has that been a kind of an underlying theme, or have there actually been better relations in the past? There have been better relations in the past. Um, I think historically, Mexico and U.S. has been, you know, a very difficult relation. I'm speaking as a Mexican. You know, we always look at our neighbor in the north as a point of, um, you know, this this kind of, um, we're very well of the asymmetry that we have in terms of our northern border. And um, for us, you know, we have a saying, for Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. <laughs> and I think uh, that whole quote, I think, sums up pretty well what we, what the what Mexicans feel in terms of the U.S. Um, you know, they, they have so much power on us uh, politically, economically, and in our foreign affairs. And it's been different. For example, with the Clinton administration, I think it was more favorable. Usually Democrats are more favorable to the United States, uh, to Mexicans. Mm. And we felt that way with Clinton. He was the one who ushered NAFTA, and we had this, this feeling of closeness with the United States. Um, with Bush, it was a little bit, it wasn't as close, but it, it, it's not the form of aggression that we're seeing now. Mm. I think for the first time in, in many years, we're seeing a very open aggression from a U.S. president. And that is what's so terrifying uh, to Mexicans, um, because we've always known that there's been sort of this... Um, very subdued, I guess, aggression uh, from the U.S. Mm. But for the first time, we have a president in in the U.S. that is very openly anti-Mexican, anti-immigrant, and he's being very vocal about it. Uh, he has a huge national platform uh, that agrees with uh, all of his rhetoric, and as well, many of his key key policies his key promises in during his campaign were very openly anti-Mexico. And for the first time, I think we feel openly bullied by um, the U.S. administration. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for, for years, you know, we've had moments where maybe during an administration, um, we haven't agreed on a lot of the immigration policies specifically or economic policies. Um, but for the first time, I think we, we feel especially threatened. Um, for example, with Obama, a lot of people don't know, but he had very aggressive um, deportation measures uh, set in place. But it wasn't as open, and the rhetoric, rhetoric wasn't as uh, aggressive as it is now with Trump. And that's, that's the real fear that I think My Mexicans have. I'll have your ear only a while I left my dear home in Ireland 
It was death, starvation, or exile. When I got to America, it was my duty to go. Enter the army and slog across Texas to join in the war against Mexico. And it was there in the pueblos and hillsides that I saw the mistake I had made. Part of a conquering army with the morals of a bayonet blade. And there amidst all these poor dying Catholics, screaming children the burning stench of it all, myself and 200 Irishmen decided to rise to the call. From Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. In the introduction, I talked a little bit about uh, this intense interdependence, and I think uh, the tendency of the U.S. to, you know, uh, blame Mexico for a lot of the problems that they have, the crime, uh, this unauthorized migration, well, you can't really see, see those tendencies without really also exploring uh, the relationship with the U.S. So you mentioned, you know, the drug... Uh, the drug war, for example. So, I yes, there is a, a high um, use of drugs in the U.S. that's obviously fueling, um, you know, this, this consumption is fueling um, the Mexican drug cartels, but also... And specifically, sorry to cut in there, but not just consumption, but also some of the policies which, yeah. you know... Uh, the Reagan administration first pursued to kind of crack down um, on on these uh, drug producing nations in S South America um, and kind of exporting instability through market reforms in these nations and pushing mm. people towards towards uh, you know uh, drug cartels as like yeah. legitimate means of of work. Yeah, exactly, and. And not only that, but, um, you know, when Calderón, our previous president, he started um, the war on drugs. Mm. Um, in 2006. In 2006, exactly. Uh, the U.S. stepped in and uh, helped mm, with the military and really helped crack down on a lot of, you know, what these perceived um, or, well, very real as well uh, drug cartels. But what that also did was increase the violence in Mexico um, through heavy militarization and that's one of the problems that we have and as well you know going back as well to go further from the drug war um, you know we were talking about unauthorized migration well yes uh, who are the people that benefit from unauthorized migration in the US it's people who benefit from cheap labor and people migrants mm -hmm. so it's not as clear as saying oh yeah there's tons of unauthorized migrants we need to deal with them but you're not also addressing the many the thousands of people that benefit from this cheap unauthorized labor hmm. do you think um 
Do you think there's maybe a, a mismatch between this sort of tough rhetoric uh, at the political level, um, but then also perhaps the reality that there is this underlying demand for, for migrant labour that comes from Mexico? Um, yeah. And that the, maybe the, the political class isn't really addressing that, it seems, in the US. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Uh, completely. And I think, I think that's one of the big things with Trump is that that's why he's focused so much on these you know, slogans that he has uh, that focus on things like a ridiculous border wall or even, you know, rescinding the Dreamers Act. They're mm. things that really cater easily to this political base that he has that, you know, want easy um, solutions, but you're not really looking at uh, the detail of the things on the ground and the political realities in the United States, you know, for like just looking at a border wall, like there is part of a wall already in the Mexico-US border, it has done nothing, and um, you know, you'd spend billions of dollars building a border wall that would do nothing to really stop or alleviate the issues that they have with unauthorized migration. Um, and same with, with the Dreamers Act, you know, you're not really providing, you know, if you rescind it, uh, which I, I'm not quite sure what's happening right now with the DACA, is that, yes, you rescind it, but then you give uh, legal, sorry, there's like tons of legal uncertainty for um, all these unauthorized migrants, and you're also not doing many things for the people that hire them. Um, and you're just giving political and legal uncertainty to uh, a lot of, sorry, my mom's calling me, to a lot of um, unauthorized migrants in the United States. So yes, I think, I think they are very aware of um, the political situation. I think a lot of the political leaders, like President Trump, just easily cater to things that might seem like they will get a lot of support from their uh, constituencies, but do not really get to the heart of the problem, which is why immigration law in the U.S. is so difficult, because there's so many different lobby groups uh, that have interests, and it, it just, I feel like it goes nowhere, really. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious. I, I understand that uh, Calderon was um, the sort of the initiator of the war on drugs in 2006, um, yeah. but since uh, you know the end of his presidency in I think 2012, um, what's what's the political shift been like, and what what has the change in leadership really meant for the country? Oh, okay, yeah, this is huge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, just Mexico also has politically. It's, it's a, right now I'm not really sure what's happening because for, for years we had what you know uh, people called a perfect dictatorship. So we had one political group ruling for 75 years. Um, they claimed that it was always uh, democratic, but you know it, there wasn't really a feeling of democracy. So in 2000, we get a new president from a different political, the first time we had a president from a different political party, the PAN, uh, who's the same as Calderon. Vicente Fox. And, you know, sorry? Was it Vicente Fox? Yeah, Vicente Fox, exactly. 
And you know, this was the time that Such a cool name. Uh, we also signed NAFTA, so Mexico went into, you know, the, uh, felt like Mexico was going into the international economy, you know, we felt like we were going forward in terms of our human rights, um, but we've had a little bit of trouble, really, as you mentioned, uh, getting what we achieved in terms of human rights. Uh, getting what we wanted in terms of the economy and with once the Felipe Calderon administration ended uh, I think a lot of Mexicans were disillusioned and with uh, Enrique Peña Nieto our current president mm -hmm. I think he's from the old political party the PRI mm -hmm. he has one of the lowest ratings right now um, mm -hmm. because because his administration has been riddled with um, controversies on corruption, controversies on human rights as well. Um, and part, part of it is because he also had to uh, continue, like, take on a lot of what the Felipe Calderon administration had left, you know, this huge uh, problem in terms of the war on drugs. Um, but as well, he has been very... In unable to cope with that uh, and on top of that he's had huge corruption scandals and on top of that um, you know Mexicans now that we have a threat in terms of the uh, Trump administration hmm. uh, the current president has been unable to really um, stand up or, or at least Mexicans feel like he's been unable to stand up for our country hmm. which is why we have he has right now one of the lowest um approval ratings of any Mexican president and we have elections next year so I'm not quite sure what's going to happen mm. um, based on you know the reality right now and his his ratings I think Mexico is moving more towards uh, the left so there's there's a new party that um, some people compare him to Hugo Chavez, from everything to Hugo Chavez to, you know, even like Trump. So, so that's where Mexico stands right now right. in terms of um, what we inherited, at least from the Calderon era. Do you want to talk about Central American migration? So yes, maybe, yes, I yeah. do. Um, yeah, I do because I feel like you know I study, I study a lot on migration. I and I have a huge interest on human rights as well. And I think um, people don't really know that right now a lot of the migration that's arriving in the unauthorized migration that's arriving in the United States um, is from Central America. So there's a region <clears throat> called the Northern Triangle, which includes Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And because of their uh, increasing levels in, of insecurity, uh, they're pushing a lot of migrants to make uh, move through Mexico uh, and north to the U.S. So in this sense, this is, I think, the, the only thing that uh, the U.S.-Mexico relations have been improving in, in terms of um, their cooperation to kind of manage the southern Mexican border, so the Mexican border with Guatemala, and um, in order to cooperate as well to improve uh, the situation, the living standards in in the Northern Triangle. But um, 
recently, actually, the the number of um, apprehensions in the U.S. Mexico border have been um, mainly from Central Americans. Mm. So for the first time, it's it hasn't been from Mexicans, but it has been from Central Americans, and. One of the biggest issues as well as someone who who focuses mainly on human rights is also the the characteristic of these deportations and these um, apprehensions. So for for last year and in 2014 as well, uh, most of the, the unauthorized migrants that were detained in the border were unaccompanied minors. Mm. Um, and that to me is a huge problem that the U.S. is not really addressing and Mexico is not addressing either uh, quite the contrary I think Mexico is doing a terrible job um, to really focus on Central American migrants because they don't have visibility um, as migrants in the U.S. or in Mexico uh, and they are the prime they are extremely vulnerable to uh, the drug cartels and I think it's 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 horrible to see that they do not get the recognition or the attention that I think they deserve has has the the media been able to be I know there's been to some extent kind of repression of the media but have they been able to be a, a reasonably robust kind of voice on, on human rights yes yes definitely I think from when I started, from when I went back to Mexico and I started working, I was actually working in human rights in the foreign ministry. And uh, from then, I think, you know, they, they went from sort of a, I felt like there was sort of a denial of any human rights problems to a more introspection of what's uh, we can do to improve the situation. I think there are huge problems that we still need to deal with, um, and mainly a lot of them have to do with the insane levels of corruption and impunity that Mexico has. Um, but yes, I do. I definitely think that um, you know the persistence of journalists and human rights defenders to continually. Um, call out human rights abuses, as well as I think the EU has actually been like, and certain individual uh, European states to really call out Mexico on its human rights abuses has forced the country to to somewhat, even if it's on the surface, to to really focus on, on certain aspects of their human rights. I think in that sense it has been positive, but with other things and going back to the Central American migrants, I think um, it really depends on the visibility as well of what kind of human rights are you talking about, you know? You are listening to Tipple Talks, a podcast dedicated to international relations, politics and culture. Hosted by Sebastian Rose, Rory Nolan, Callum Lynch and Andrew Knowles. In the UK and around the world, uh, one of the things that has come up quite often, or has grabbed headlines at least, um, for negative reasons about Mexico, has been uh, the disappearance of uh, some 40 students. Um, what what can you tell us about that being, uh, having like worked with uh, human rights and um, 
your kind of internal understanding of, of Mexican politics and the ins and outs of how how these things work? Mm-hmm. Well, it's been, you know, almost, it's been more than two years since the 43 students disappeared, and there's still really no understanding, no clear understanding of what happened that night. Um, it, for me, it was really sad, and I know for a lot of Mexicans, it was quite sad to experience what happened because, um, you know, we were angry because it's it's something that's very common in Mexico. It just I think for the first time, it was a huge scale. Um, it was just of a huge scale. Sorry, my mom was calling. It's a huge scale because it was 43 students uh, that just missed that just went missing, mm. um, and they were from one of the poorest states as well in Mexico. So one of the, the states that is the hardest hit in terms of um, the drug cartels, and one of the states that has um, the highest levels of inequality. And to see that the government continuously, um, you know, has these high levels of impunity I think that's really what enrages Mexicans the most and what has been the most difficult part of the disappearance of these 43 students in Ayotzinapa um, because for you know since Calderón started the war on drugs there's been thousands of disappearances and I think the significance of this one was First, how the government reacted, which was, which is something that the Mexican government has been doing since, you know, these disappearances have been starting, which is basically saying, you know, putting down, uh, in order to not investigate further, uh, they put down these disappearances as saying, oh, they were related to the drug cartels, they were narcos, so then they're, they don't deserve, kind of implying that they don't deserve uh, to have, um, how would you say, like, to be investigated. A proper investigation. Yeah, exactly, right. which is, anyways, even if they were drug dealers, you know, everybody mm. deserves to have um, initial certainty. But anyways, you know, once it was found out that these, these students were, in fact, just going to a protest, um, then, you know, the the government just mismanaged completely um, and has continuously mismanaged um, the whole disappearance. Uh, I know a lot of people were uh, sacked um, because of the mismanagement, because of the belittling of human rights defenders, which is commonplace in Mexico. Um, And I think we have, I think it reflected on our culture of really not believing in human rights in general or not believing that um, we have to investigate these cases um, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because I'm answering the question well, like, <laughs> alongside that the, the Mexican uh, government or the state seems to be signed up to a lot of human rights obligations at the kind of the international regional level so it's strange yeah. that they're kind of on the f- official kind of level they're they're committed but in practice um really not at all no 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 because in 
I mean, I think it's easy to write a report to the United Nations, for example, or show up in Brussels and say, look, this is, and this is what is happening in Mexico, you know, they say, look, we have this, um, we've, and it happened with the, this case of the 43 mis missing students. They invited um, international um, investigators to come in and uh, do research on what happened and to investigate and to get to some conclusions on what happened that night. But on practice, uh, what was really happening was that they were obstructing at all levels of government, but they were really obstructing the investigations. Um, and for what reason? I'm not really sure. I think, you know, there's a lot of corruption, mainly at the local level in terms of government. And it's that's the tricky situation in Mexico is that sometimes it's it's not as clear cut to see right. who is the perpetrator. Right. Um, because in all of these cases of human rights that have been happening, I mean, you guys know a lot about the 43 missing students because it was very well known internationally. Mm. But um, at, at around the same time, there was also another case of these, it's called the Caso Tlatlaya, the Tlatlaya case where um, 22 uh, people were killed by the mil Mexican military. Um, I think it's called in English point-and-blank shoot. Yeah. Um, but they were just killed. Um, and instead of investigating, you know, why they killed 22 um, mainly young people, uh, in Mexico, you know, the military just said, oh, they were drug dealers, you know, what we were talking about before. They oh. just kind of set it aside and said they were drug dealers and, you know, they we had to kill them. And that's another issue, human rights. And, and that's what I'm saying, that it's, it's not so clear-cut in terms of um, who is right and wrong because it's, it's I think... There's so much collusion in terms of local governments, in terms of military, in terms of police, in terms of the drug cartels, that you're not really sure who is responsible. And in the case of Ayotzinapa, of these 43 missing students, you can really see that, you know. Um, I think the first person to get blamed and to get sent to jail was uh, the mayor. You know, but I think... I think was it the mayor... Was the mayor, if, I, if I'm correct, um, the mayor was part of the, uh, the old left party, is that right? And that, yes. that's what caused the split, one of the yes. main factors that caused the split uh, for, yes. is his name Moreno, who's, who's like the kind of uh, yeah. Chavez, Bernie Sanders slash Trump um, <laughs> yeah, amalgamation. Yeah, his name is Andres Manuel López Obrador. AMLO, but uh, his group is Morena. Mm, Morena, and okay. Yes, exactly, exactly. He was part of that left group. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was easy to kind of uh, blame it on him, his mm. wife. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you have all these other levels that uh, are not being um, held as well. And that goes both ways to... To people underneath the mayor, as well as people people higher up, because they were students, because um, you know the government was caught as well in a lot of lies. 
there was a lot of very high-profile scandals in terms of uh, this government's administration where they tried to kind of downplay the situation and I think that enraged Mexicans even more Um, and that's why this case was Mm. so visible and as well because it's 43 43 victims and that's that's an incredibly I mean Mexico has you know high rates of uh, crime but 43 is is a very high level of um, it's it's incredibly crazy to to think that 43 people can go missing and still to this day we have no idea what happened to them I mean nothing is really known and um, I think that's that's why it's had and you know internationally it got picked up and that's why why it has so much political visibility and has had so much political consequences but I think in terms of Mexico I think this was more kind of um, I'm trying to find like a sentence to really kind of describe it but it, it was kind of the last straw for a lot of Mexicans that had been dealing with six years of very visible violence and I mean right now because of a different change in administration uh, you don't really see it so much but at least what, what I remember during the Calderon uh, presidency at the height of the drug on wars, war is that whenever you open the news everything was so um, violent everything mm. and the tactics that the, the, the drug cartels would use was so visible and so violent and clearly targeted and I think those were six years of continual um, violence that you would see in the news everywhere and uh, you know and I think with the kidnapping of these 43 students I think it was a moment when you know we had just had enough we had had enough of the right. same excuses enough of uh, the same levels of impunity the same yeah it was just like i think mexicans just had enough of of the same thing that we've been having for the past couple of years and you know the levels of violence that just don't seem to really end so and i mean for example also i mean 43 uh kidnapped students is quite a high number but to go back a little bit on, you know, my interest on Central American migrants and what we were talking a little bit before is that it's interesting that, for example, you know, they find mass graves with around over a hundred uh, corpses, and nothing happens because. Where, where is this? Is this in Mexico, are not, or are you talking about other Central American countries? In, mainly in Mexico, but uh, the reason why I mentioned the Central American migrants is that because, you know, they, they're not identified, they're mainly, mm. like, remains, but my suspicion is that mainly these are Central American migrants. Is there any sense of, like, what the date uh, in terms of when, when these people were buried and so on, um, what, what kind of period that would have been? I think uh, it really depends on the um, mass grave because sadly there's been way too many. But I remember in, I think it was 
around in March, there was a mass grave uh, where there was more than 250 bodies. Um, and it was located somewhere in the state of uh, Veracruz, which is on the east of Mexico. And the thing is that um, I don't think there was like, it was in one day, um, and I don't think there's like a certain timeline. I haven't really looked into it. Why? why what? Mm-hmm. What's the purpose of, of these? Is it just pure criminality in terms of like it, trying to extort these migrants? Or is it some sort of political motive maybe? I, I mean, I don't know. No, in terms of, you know, I was having a discussion with a friend about this. Uh, because it seems to have no purpose and I, in terms of the disappearances in Mexico as well as these disappearances of unauthorized migrants, I think there's many reasons, you know, it's, I don't think it's politically motivated, I think, um, I think it's more just we have, uh, sadly we have a culture of crime uh, that's really, you know, we've had for years, but it just increased even more during the drug wars. And Mm. now, for example, with Central American migrants, it's easy to extort them, um, you know, for money, to sell them into human trafficking. And since they're not visible as they're, they're just not visible and, um, they, they, the level of impunity in Mexico is so high, they become so vulnerable to just be di- dis- disposed into mass graves and be forgotten and then found as a skull a couple years later, you know? And I think that's the trouble with these mass graves is that it's, it's terrifying to think that people can be so disposable and never really matter to the government like it it never leads to any conclusion and kind of like with the 43 students you know who knows what happened to their bodies and that's kind of what the situation is right now in 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 mexico in terms of human rights you are listening to tipple talks a podcast dedicated to international relations politics and culture so um for the elections in 2018, I mean, it's still up in the air, but I do think that um, AMLO, the one from the candidate from the left, has right now the only real possibilities of being president. I mean, he's already run twice, and he's been very close. The first time, I think he was only like 0.6% uh, difference from Calderón. Mm. Um, but I think this time he has a real chance of winning. I'm not sure which way it would go either way, um, because as history has shown in Latin America, is that sometimes, um, you know, left governments can go both ways. Yeah, it would be yeah. interesting to, to keep up to date with these events in Mexico unfolding. Yeah, hopefully um, I could uh, give you a couple insights on my definitely. country. Can be definitely. be an election correspondent next year. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully you guys can go visit. I hope uh, my human rights discussions didn't scare you guys. <laughs> I know I always tell Sebastian to go to Mexico City. Yeah, I, I want to go after you send me that video. 
I would, okay, I would love to go to Mexico City. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Natalia. Thank you. <laughs> Hablando de mujeres y traiciones, se fueron consumiendo las botellas, pidieron que cantara mis canciones, y yo canté unas dos en contra de ellas, de pronto que se acerca un caballero.